Welcome, everyone, to the 17th Randall Chambly podcast with Jaime Diaz. Randall, you're out there in Scottsdale and uh, very relaxed and uh, nice morning. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's always nice to talk golf with you. Yeah, we, my wife and I just moved out here. We've been out here a couple of weeks, so still uh, unpacking and whatnot. So late hours, early mornings kind of thing, but, uh, but we're happy to be back out here. That's great. Congratulations. I'm in North, North Carolina myself, um, where it's very hot, but also uh, very uh, tranquil. Yes, um, great spot. <laughs> uh, well, we had an eventful week. Uh, have a new number one in the world. Let's start talking about him, John Rahm. Um, that was impressive, obviously, at Muirfield Village because that golf course was set up so much like a major. And he showed the kind of control and restraint that perhaps some people doubted he might have had to a full, full extent. But uh, John's been so impressive in his climb here. I wonder uh, how you assess him uh, in the big picture and any, any other impression you have of him. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people saw this coming, um, you know, going back – five, six years ago, Phil Mickelson said this was coming, um, you know, and then shortly after he played a casual round with him, he started calling various executives of uh, equipment companies and telling them that if they're not chasing this guy, they're going to make a mistake. And then shortly after he said he'd be in the top 10. And I think he might've even predicted he'd be number one, but pretty much anybody who's played golf with John Rom uh, has predicted amazing things of him. You know, you, you, you know, at times you look at him, and you think there's, there's a maturation that needs to ha you know, happen there. You know, he's got this moody festering spirit that, you know, everybody, um, you know, it, probably including myself at a time or two has, has thought that it would thwart his ascent. But, you know, we often try to predict, or should I say, um, associate, somebody's character from their demeanor and we are often wrong um you know the the fact is he is better after a bogey than he is at any other time on a golf course now it may not look that way but you know that's that's a tall compliment to a player um and then i guess just watching him on friday you know hogan said famously that he only hit a few perfect shots around you know people that played with him would swear every shot he hit was perfect you know, Jack Nichols played with Hogan the 36 holes at the 60 U.S. Open, and I, I think he hit every said he hit every green until the 17th hole in the last round. Hit every fairway, but I'm I'm sure Hogan thought he only hit a handful of perfect shots that day. Well, I'm certain if we asked John Rahm if he hit the second shot on 15 in the second day, if that if that wasn't the equivalent of Tiger Woods' second shot into 14 at the 2000. U.S. Open on Sunday. Um, you know, I, I've, I've hit that shot. I've tried to hit that shot a million times. Not a million, but I've, I've played a fair bit there. And, just, you know, and you see these great players, they hit good shots, but it's not often that you see them hit one that takes off exactly how you know they wanted it to fly, exactly how it needed to fly at the exact trajectory, the exact weight, and then as soon as it leaves the face, his caddy went, mmm, mm. didn't say a word. <laughs> he just went, yum. You know, you could hear him go, mmm. And I thought, wow, that got my attention because even the John Roms of the world don't hit shots like that very often. And so you, you knew that his 
his game was right where he wanted it to be. And it was just a matter of whether or not it was going to be his week. You know, was he going to get the right breaks here or there? Then as the golf course thinned out, uh, the field, which was great. It was great to see a golf course play like that because it, it literally thinned the field out at the top. Mm-hmm. And that's why we need more golf courses set up that way. Yeah. Because it does separate good shots from average shots and great shots from good shots. So it thinned the field. And, you know, looking at it, I, you know, like I, I, I have to make predictions every week. I get a lot of them wrong, but, um, you know, it seemed to me it was pretty easy to predict John was going to win. And, you know, Saturday night closing, I was like, you know, it smells like a blowout to me. And um, because it's just, you know, I mean, it's no knock on Brian Palmer. It's no knock on Finau. Not everybody can come along with that kind of talent of a John Rom. And, you know, he had an eight-shot lead making the turn. You know, loads of people were texting me, good call. I was like, well, we'll see. Because I, <laughs> I can remember Martin Keimer having a 10-shot lead. And losing. Uh, and losing it on the back nine. And everybody can remember Palmer having a seven-shot lead and losing it. And then when, you know, Ryan lost his temper on the 10th tee a little bit and a, a lot of bit on 11, you thought, you know, I, I've never seen anybody save one person. I've only ever seen one person with a lead as big as his get that mad. And I, I was playing on the Southwestern Amateur, 1980, 1980, maybe 81. Yeah, it was 81, 1981, um, June of 81. And I got paired in the final round with Corey Pavin and Kurt Byron at San Diego. I'm not San Diego, um, at Albuquerque in New Mexico at the home course there. So it was Kurt Byron's home course because that's where he went to school. Mm-hmm. And Corey had a five or six shot lead over me and maybe a seven shot lead over Kurt Byron. I think I shot 32 going out. And he increased his lead by two. So he was leading by seven or eight. And he hit it about eight feet on the 10th hole. And he missed the putt. And he had a bullseye putter and he buried it in the green. And Kurt Byron got so mad at him. uh, He said, easy. It's not like, he said, it's not like you're not going to win. And, you know, you know, two things. One, I thought, how, how good do you have to be or how, how focused do you have to be to have a seven or eight shot lead and be that mad? I mean, there's as, as shocking as it was from a bad, you know, from a not able to control yourself perspective, it was also illuminating from a, mm-hmm. my goodness, do I have that beast in me? I, yeah. I don't know that I have that beast in me. And that's, you know, that's who John Rahm is. You know, he's, he said afterwards that he wanted to be like Jack Nicholas when he was talking to Jack Nicholas. And I thought, well, I mean, from a talent perspective, you know, you, you have the potential to be one of the best players of all time. But from a comportment perspective, you got a ways to go. <laughs> I don't think we have video of Jack slamming his club into the ground with a seven-shot lead. I think the worst I ever heard Jack say was, oh, Jack, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but that's, that's, this, that's this era, you know. I mean, they grew up watching the most animated – exciting at times angry at times profane player in the history of the game and so his progeny is now on the pga tour mm-hmm. and they they play with a lot more animation i think some most of them and and we hear a lot more profanity laced commentary now um it's hard you can't go to a telecast without hearing the f word a half dozen times mm-hmm. um so as good as golf is right now um you know i you know i 
you know, I, I think uh, they need to be made aware that the world is watching and listening and impressionable kids are watching and listening. And, you know, that's not the ideal way to comport yourself on a golf course. Now, I'm look, I'm not acting like I, I've never cussed on a golf course. I certainly have. And I've gotten mad on a golf course many, many times. I know how hard it is. Um, but I think you do have a responsibility when you know you're on TV to, to uh, sort of act consistent, you know, with, uh, with the traditions of the game. I mean, I don't ever remember Venturi apologizing for Tom Watson's language or Nicholas's language or behavior on a golf course. I don't ever remember Dave Marr apologizing for Johnny Miller's behavior or language on a golf course or don't remember Johnny Miller apologizing for Greg Norman's or Nick Faldo's or Seve's or Nick Price's vocabulary on the golf course. So, you know, as good as this generation is, you know, I think, uh, you know, they can learn a lot from uh, past greats too. Well, it's interesting when you bring up Tiger because obviously uh, throughout history, the number one player has had the most influence on, on the way the game is played in style and also in behavior, I think and the way that maybe someone even deals with the press. Um, and I do think Tiger set an example in many ways, a great one in terms of the way he plays. Uh, his comportment, I think, has always been looked at through the lens of, look, he got mad, but he got rid of it. And on the next shot, he was ready. And to your point about John, he's better after a bogey than after a par. Uh, I think Tiger sort of uh, – uh, enable that, that, uh, that kind of response, uh, as long as you get rid of it. Now, John probably hasn't gotten rid of it as far as the, uh, you know, the tension and the anger, uh, to the point where it's not affected his, his next shot anywhere as well as Tiger did and has, uh, but he's getting better at it. Uh, and I also think as the cameras and the microphones roll and get closer, the players will become more conscious because it is, it is a reflecting on who they are as people and their images and their brands, quote unquote, which is such a big word now. And I thought Bryson ran into that when he made that 10, uh, once again, on 15 over at uh, Muirfield Village. And, you know, the, the microphone stayed on while he was talking to the official about the, the out of bounds uh, ruling. And he looked bad. And I think, you know, it's not a free ride. You can't just act however you want and vent with impunity. And I think the pendulum is going to swing back a little in that regard. Um, and I think Rom's gotten better at it too. But well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that look, I, you know, there's a lot to admire about, the, you know, the tour these days. Um, but, you know, and, and I, I understand they're in the heat of the moment and uh, adrenaline's pumping, and, you know, the, the outcomes of decisions that rules officials make affects the world ranking points and FedEx cup points and the money and, you know, loads of things go and there's, there's always more hill to climb. I get all that. But, uh, you know, when someone comes along like a Jordan Spieth, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why it is so easy to pull for Jordan Spieth because not only is he a phenomenal player, look at the grace with which he handles himself. Uh, you know, I, I can't ever remember him yelling profanities on the golf course or he's animated. It's exciting to watch him play. He's tremendously animated, but you know, when you think about the highest example of the game, you know, Hogan Nicholas gave us that 
Um, but you know, when you look at Nicholas, he also gave us the highest example of how to behave on a golf course. Um, you know, the highest, you know, I don't think Jack gets enough credit for that. You know, as great a player as Jack was, you think about always under the gun. All you go back and you look, use Google, type in Jack Nicholas, go to his Wikipedia page and look from 1970 to 1979. And they, they, they color in yellow the times he finished in the top 10 and the color in green is wins. And I think you will find just four times he didn't finish in the top 10 in a major championship in the seventies. And so always in contention, always with the camera on him, always being asked the tough question, never surly, never inappropriate, you know, just, and so again, you know, you, 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 can't aspire. I mean, you can aspire, but I mean, it's unlikely you're ever going to play golf like Jack, but you can certainly aspire to the way that he comported himself. So, and, and Arnold too, you know, I mean, Arnold handled himself with so much class. So as I watched the golf today and as amazed as I am at how much better players are today than they were 40 years ago, I can't help, but, you know, have the same sort of aspiration for the, comportment that's consistent with the traditions of the game yeah um i you know i'm of two minds because i don't mind the passion for example when you watch uh you know uh hbo's football shows and everything is out there and you uh, and you see the intensity and you, and you and you hear the language and it's all part of this blood and guts life and death kind of effort and golf's not quite the same but there is a tremendous amount of intensity and so i don't mind sometimes that it leaks out but I, I, I guess, obviously, there's a, there's a point at which it becomes distasteful, even to, you know, people who have a, a pretty uh, high tolerance for that stuff. Uh, and it just looks petulant. And I, so, you know, golf as the game of character that it is always described to be has been dented a bit over this. And uh, I, I do think, though, that the players are, are going to become more and more conscious about it. You, you just don't – I think the one thing you can say about the modern player is under more scrutiny now. I mean, every shot is shown from the first tee on, and there's just no place to hide. And yeah, I think yeah. it's, a hard, it's a harder thing than even Jack and Arnold had to face. As much as they were scrutinized tremendously, they still had moments where, you know, it was just them and the fans. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing you can say about today's game is that the rewards and punishment are the same. The rewards are widespread worldwide recognition. And the punishment is widespread worldwide yeah. recognition. There you go. Yeah. Well, you know, I just, just to go talk about John's game very quickly. Uh, what, you know, I, I look at him as sort of a young Nicholas, not to say he's got the accomplishments of a young Nicholas, but his body <laughs> and the, uh, the athletic, you know, coordination and touch, it just seems like it's physically a pretty easy game for him in the sense that in that Stabilities with with the way he's built allows him to swing very hard without a lot of you know uh, movement or instability. It's it's a stable kind of action, and I know it's idiosyncratic. And I know the club's shut, and a lot of things are not exactly textbook. It just looks like he can do it over and over and over to me. And maybe I'm putting the you know the cart before the horse there, but it does seem like from the very beginning it hasn't been a big strain for him to get his golf swing in some kind of working order every week. Uh, he has bad weeks, but not many. And I think that's what 
speak so well about him is, yes, he's won six times in Europe and four times in the United States, but he's been in contention so often. He's just there a lot. And I think that's what bodes well for his future as a guy who possibly could, you know, even stretch this number one out to a, to a, to a further place. Um, I just wonder how you, does he remind you of anybody? Do you, in terms of his physical game, what, what advantages do you feel he has? Yeah, he reminds me of a lot of people uh, in the game. He's like an amalgam of the best attributes of so many of the best players. So um, you're right. I mean, his, his, his body reminds me of Jack Nicholas. you know, blessed with, uh, you know, an incredibly stable base, let's say. Um, his golf swing reminds me a lot of Lee Trevino. Uh, you know, it's, it's a golf swing, highly idiosyncratic golf swings for the most part have been more about precision than power. Um, you know, if you look at Lee Trevino, Jim Furyk, uh, Ray Floyd, Gabe Brewer, Miller Barber, they've been more about precision than power, but there's powerful elements to John Rahm's golf swing because he's built like Jack Nicklaus, swings like Lee Trevino, and he gets the club in an impact position like Byron Nelson. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I look at every single player at impact. You know, you go back and you try to reverse engineer how they got there, um, and there, there is no player on tour that is more beautifully lined up at impact than John Rahm. And, you know, the, the, you hear the common refrain that um, – you know, tour players are almost identical at impact. I mean, they have a lot of similarities, but they're far from identical. Um, uh, you know, John Rahm's impact position is <clears throat> virtually identical to Byron Nelson's. And, you know, nobody made the game and looked more simple than Byron Nelson, and nobody was more consistent than Byron Nelson mm-hmm. ever in the history of the game. Nobody's been that consistent. So, you know, I mean, the, the record Tiger had for scoring in 2000 was breaking Byron Nelson's scoring record from 1945. <laughs> so that's a, that's a long time for a record to stand. Um, so I see all that. And then I see the, the sort of the, <clears throat> the imagination uh, of a Jose and a Seve, you know, and then that intensity of a Tiger. So he has all these wonderful attributes. Um, I've told this story on Golf Central, but if you haven't heard it, I think it, it kind of tells a little bit about his talent um, <clears throat> and who he is. I was uh, playing a casual round with actually Joe Gibbs, whose um, idea it was to found the Golf Channel. He came up with the idea. It originated in his, his head. Right. Um, um, and then he, you know, was friends with Mr. Palmer, so he got Mr. Palmer involved, and the rest is history. But uh, Bailey and I, you know, make an annual trip to Hawaii, and uh, we were at Joe Gibbs's club, McKenna, and that's a favorite spot for, you know, scores of tour players before they play at the uh, um, Tournament of Champions at Kapalua. So anyway, I was on the putting green, and John Rahm was just flipping wedge shots around there, and all of a sudden he was right beside me. And I'd heard the day before that he shot 59. And this was, this was, what was this? You know, this was... December like 28th so it wasn't yet the new year and uh I said to him I said I heard you shot 59 yesterday and he goes yeah I did and I said is that the first time you've ever broken 70 
And he goes, that's the third time I've done it this year. <laughs> oh, my God. You mean 60, not 70. <laughs> he just scoffed at me. He was like, that's the third time I've done it this year. And I thought, man, this guy is good. This guy is really good. You know, I just loved it. It was like, it yeah. was so beautifully arrogant and good and great and amazing all in one you know i mean that was just in just a couple of words i was like geez louise you know, i've been playing golf since i was 13 years old i'm 58 45 years i've never shot 59 <laughs> damn sure didn't shoot it three times in one year um you know so i was like holy cow this guy's and then you know the people he had played with the day before um you know they were they were out there so i was talking to them one of them was a sort of a lifelong friend of mine, Tommy Armour, um, and another, you know, a couple of members or whatever. And they're like, you just cannot believe how good this guy is. It's just get, get ready. Here comes the tidal wave of talent. So it's, well, it's you're him a lot now, you know, in Scottsdale probably. Yeah. You know, he, he plays up at Whisper Rock. So, you know, um, you know, he's, uh, we have a lot of mutual friends, let's say. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, thanks. Let's talk about Tiger very quickly. Uh, I just wonder, you know, there was a long break. He obviously didn't start uh, this year very well, but the presumption was, well, whatever stiffness or physical issues he had, he's going to have all these months to, to recover and he's going to come out firing. And it didn't happen. And I just wonder, obviously, the smallest sample possible, but do you feel that you want to reassess or or did it force you to, to look at him with a different perspective in terms of the future? Yeah. I mean, I guess we're, you know, it's, it's kind of slowly coming into focus for us and it's the reality that Tiger deals with and, um, you know, have to really compliment, you know, the way he handles the questions about uh, his body because he, he handles it, uh, you know, with, I think a lot of class because um, every day he's asked about his body and, um, and he's, uh, he's, he's, he's been so, forthcoming you know this go around on the issues he's dealing with you know it's day to day he says you know it's week to week you can't predict it and um so you know if we've learned anything from the masters last year is that you know he's still capable and uh, the masters and zozo he's still capable of of being the best player in the world but post masters and post zozo we've seen that he's also still capable of being completely disabled um, yeah. by pain. So, you know, as I, as I, you know, I, I've said with, you know, the great thing about golf is as players age, if they're immensely talented, like a Sam Snead or Ben Hogan or Jack Nicklaus, um, as they age and their skills diminish in one area, they can kind of pick up the slack in another. And they were so good that when they're half as good as they used to be, they're still good enough to beat people. And we saw that with Snead, you know, Hogan won at, what was he? He was uh, almost 48 when he won. So well, yeah, uh, yeah. 47 or whatever, but, um, um, and Nicholas. And so that's true with Tiger. He's, he sort of recreated himself going into the Memorial event. He led the PGA tour in distance from the edge of the fairway. And, you know, he, he hadn't played an inc It wasn't like he played once or twice where mm -hmm. you could expect a statistical anomaly um, you know, he played, where did he play? He played Zozo. He played, um, uh, Farmer. He played Genesis. Um, so what's that? 
I think that was the last one. Go ahead. Right. So he's played three events. So, you know, I mean, that's a, that's at least, uh, and he made the cut in all of them. So, I mean, that's a, that's a decent amount of data to look at and say, well, he's not missing it off the map. Right. Um, just in, in all of those had strokes gained uh, statistics that, that they were keeping. So you can look at that and say, well, his distance from the edge of the fairway was 16 feet, five feet closer than Jim Furyk. Wow. And, and twice as close as the, as the tour average. So it's like, he's recreated himself. You know, he's, he's minimized the miss, become more accurate driver. He's still a fabulous iron player. Um, but, you know, I think the two issues that, you know, are, are eye-opening are, you know, his ball speed at Muirfield Village was 170 miles an hour, roughly. Uh, ball speed of 170 miles an hour is middle of the road. I mean, that's, 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 that's 100 people hit it past you, 100, you hit it past 100 people kind of thing. Um, so, you know, was that due to his body? I don't know. Uh, sure. I'm sure it was. And if that's the case, you know, that's what he's dealing with. Uh, decaying club head speed, ball speed. And then, you know, he's almost dead last on the tour in strokes game putting almost dead last in three putt percentage. And now he's played four events. Um, so, you know, every year he's played the tour since 2013, his putting's gotten worse. So, you know, I, I suspect that's a, a, the result of a bad back, not being able to practice, um, mm -hmm. trying to be a great parent. Um, and he's a single parent, you know, I mean, it's not like he, you know, can share that responsibility when they're in his, you know, his, his, uh, his custody. So, you know, a lot of obligations there that he's meeting, but you know, the fact is, you know, there's, there's kids in their prime who are out there with not bad backs who can putt all day long mm -hmm. and, uh, are making everything where he's struggling. So going forward, you know, that's the reality that, that we're watching. Yeah, I, and I sort of feel every week's a crapshoot. He might catch four days in a row where it doesn't hurt, and things will fall together like they did at Augusta, uh, which was, you know, an, a very nice steady performance and then incredible sort of seizing the moment on Sunday, on the back nine especially. Um, that's a lot to ask. And, and, you know, I just – I guess I was seduced uh, like many. I don't know if it's all emotional. I, you just have that much – I always have that much respect for his talent and his ability that he was still in the hunt for, for, for more majors. I, I, I'm, you know, I sort of feel like anything where he once said back in 2015, everything from this point is gravy. I sort of feel like literally that is the case right now. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> you know, I look at post 43 success. If you take Sam Snead out of it, he won seven times up turning 43, you know, when you start to look at, you know, what kind of success did the greatest players of all time have after turning 43 years of age? And it's not, it's not much. I mean, it is scraps, you know, Jack won twice after turning 44. Gary player, maybe the fittest guy ever didn't win a single PGA tour event mm -hmm. after turning 44. Walter Hagen, not a single PGA tour event after turning 44. Uh, Tom Watson won twice, you know, I mean, show me somebody who's played their career, with less injury and less signs of aging than Tom Watson. And yet he only won twice after turning 44. So, you know, the reality is that door just closes so fast. Yeah. And um, let's hope it's still got a little crack in it and he can eke out a few more victories. You know, as you alluded to every other player 
that has gotten to this age, we've hoped that they've had some renaissance with their game. With Tiger, we look at him, we, th- we hope that he has some renaissance with his body. Yes. That's kind of the difference. Well, I think the ball speed is the biggest indicator because the guys who have won, like Kenny Perry and VJ, who were really credible late, and I, I suspect Snead kept their ball speed late into life. And I think if Tiger, I had heard this, you know, that he always feels like 118 club head speed is kind of the hallmark. He can't go beyond, below that and have really great chances to, to stay in contention all the time. And it's dropping. So, you know, it, maybe there'll be another physical miracle like the back fusion. But short of that, I feel like he's really going to have to just optimize whatever opportunities, and they may be seldom, uh, that he gets. And, uh, you know, something like Muirfield Village, you just felt like the memorial. You, he just had no chance. He, he was not going to be able to, to, right. to contend. Uh, so we got the Olympics in a year. Uh, I know he wants to play that. Uh, that would be quite a – and he's always been so goal-oriented. Maybe that will be one more sense of incentive that will uh, – I have no doubt he may yeah. if his body cooperates. He, I have no doubt, but you know that's a big if. Big if, yeah. Well, Brandon, let's talk about an issue that we could probably talk about every podcast. We could probably name a podcast about the distance issue or the distance insights project that the USGA has called it. Um, I, I wonder, you know, I want to kind of frame it as, you know, what kind of style do you see golf going toward? Playing style, I mean. And then to follow that, what kind of style would you like to see, ideally? Um, but where are we going? I mean, just to very quickly mention some of the things that have happened just in this last week. We had Martin Slumbers reacting to Bryson. We had Jack reacting on television. Obviously, have Bryson's example, uh, which is, you know, I think pretty revolutionary. And then we had Tony Finau uh, saying he was inspired by, by – uh, Bryson. Then we have Ernie L saying, you know, listen, there's a way to deal with this. It's starting to become like topic number one, topic A out on tour, I think, mm-hmm. or at least at the elite levels of golf. And, you know, it's a huge subject. There's a lot of varying perspectives and disagreements. And I obviously always respect your, your perspective. What, what have you sort of evolved towards in these last months as you watch Deschambeau and watch and project forward the kind of style of golf that you think will become more predominant on the tour? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd say that, you know, it, it's important to keep in perspective what Bryson is doing. Uh, it's, it's far from being unprecedented in golf, far from being unprecedented in the last 40 years as distances have greatly increased. You know, he's <clears throat> averaging uh, at the beginning of last week, doing the numbers, you know, 323, which is roughly 27 yards longer than tour average, let's say. Okay, 27 yards longer than tour average. Uh, 1991, John Daly was longer than 27 yards than tour average. Okay. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, John- Tiger certainly has been in. In well, many tournaments that he, he won. He wasn't that, but it was, you know, it was a fellow by the name of Scott Hind. It was Hank Keeney. It was Robert Garrigus. It was J.B. Holmes. It was Bubba Watson. Um, you know, roughly 20 times since 1980, mm-hmm. players have been more than 27 yards longer than tour average. So when you look at how long Bryson is and pairing to tour average, 
he is nowhere near uh, the top of the mountain. Um, the, the difference is, is that those players that I referred to arrived on the scene with all that power. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah. Daly shows up with all that power. Tiger shows up with all that power. Garrigus, Hind, Hank Keeney, Bubba, they all show up and they have that. If power. anything, they geared back. So there's, <laughs> there's no, there's no yeah. before and after with them, mm -hmm. but there's a definite before and after with Bryson. So the world is, you know, I think quite enamored with this before and after not only a physical before and after, but there is a technical and then there's the statistical before and after. So to see someone in a world of type A personalities find the mystery to power that he was missing is that's every single, you wrote for Golf Digest forever. How many covers were about finding distance? Probably yeah, one out of one out of four? Yeah, one out of oh, three. Oh, you said just one out of four? Okay. I, I, oh, no, I'm, that's a guess. I mean, a lot of them were get rid of your slice, but there's only I like three say, copies. I would say somewhere on every cover, there's... Oh, on every cover, there definitely was... There's 90% of the covers would have something about how to hit it further. Yes. How to hit it farther. Mm -hmm. um, so here comes a guy who was cruising along at, you know, 40th or 30th in driving distance, 45th at driving distance, and now he's first. So I think, you know, rather than knee-jerk react in a negative way to that, you applaud it because all those other players, and here's where the difference is, all those other players I named, Daly, Tiger, Hand, Keeney, all of them go through 20 times this has happened. Their accuracy was 45% to 55% fairways, okay? So people could, one, look at them and go, well, the roughest, the roughest, full of long hitters, and mm -hmm. two, they're freaks. They were easily in that era dismissed as athletic freaks. Nobody wants to swing like that. Their swings are kind of funny, so you could just sort of say that's not golf and just carry on doing your own thing. But now we know enough about how power is generated, and we also know, thanks to Mark Brody's book, every shot counts, and various other sabermetrics analysis in the game we know the benefit we've always said power was huge in the game it's mm -hmm. a big deal but now we have actual metrics to attach to the benefit of power so now we see the benefit we know that more than anything else increasing your distance is the fastest way to increase your uh, to lower your score we absolutely know it so now distance has become strategy distance is not just a luxury it's a strategy mm -hmm. okay and distance is a talent okay it's a skill that you can learn it's not a gift that was given to you by some freakish anomaly it's it's a skill you can learn so when you see all that you think well this isn't the ball in the club because he was not doing this last year this is him so mm -hmm. a lot to learn from it and and the great thing about it is he's done it with accuracy so Everybody should be applauding him, not looking at what is wrong with what he's doing and that it's going to ruin the game. And by the way, I mean, I, 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 I said this last week. So if you look at the driving distance leader from, uh, from 2000 to now, so that's upwards, uh, that's almost 21 years. You take the guy who led in driving distance for the year, they've won eight times collectively. Eight. Eight. Okay. So you look at the, you know, so distance 
is hardly all this game is about. If distance were mostly all this game was about, I would imagine the distance leader would have won 40, 50 times. But the game is still about long and straight. It's still about judgment. It's still about nerve and it's still about skill and it's still about strategy. Yeah. When you look at the total driving leader from 2000, 2003, they won 13 times. In 2004, a new metric came along that sort of obsoleted total driving, strokes gain off the tee. That person, the strokes gain off the tee leader, which is about distance and accuracy. That's how you get to lead strokes gain off the tee. They've won 37 times. Right. And I think that's the distinction. Yeah. So we're talking about the game is still about length and accuracy. It is not just about length. So I think, and I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I just, I disagree with the knee jerk reaction to what Bryson DeChambeau is doing. First of all, it's not unprecedented. Second of all, it's more about accuracy. Third, the game is still about linked accuracy, strategy, skill, nerve, and judgment. I, you know, you may be surprised, but I definitely applaud Bryson. I admire what he's done. I think he should be praised for it. He is changing the game because he intellectually figured out where the advantage is in the modern game. And he's doing it in a way that others will follow because it's got metrics behind it. It's got data behind it. And he's also got the example of what he's doing right in front of their eyes. And he's doing his job in every way to be as good a player as he can be. That should not be criticized. And I'm, I would, I'm the last guy to criticize that because I admire it athletically. I admire it uh, mentally. And I admire the influence it's having because it is something you can measure now. The long hitters of the past, they were great players too. Length and Jack was long and straight, and it, and it mattered. You didn't have the metrics to back it up in terms of quantifying it, but it was pretty obvious to the eye that that guy was down the middle of the fairway a lot and past other people, and that's an easy place to play from. I think the difference too now is to that, to that 2013 and onward a stat that you mentioned, guys are winning now with length, is they figured out how length can actually – be productive for them as opposed to just something that you know is almost uh, a flourish or used to be kind of a flourish you're right you know people did not fear the longest hitter when Martin Rosink I remember seeing those guys in Golf Digest there'd always be a story about the longest hitter and there was always an obscure guy who Eduardo uh, I think (laughs) that the Italian kid he was anyway guys you never even heard of again but that's changed because now nobody is just hitting it blindly as far as they can. They're hitting it as far as they can with control. That's the goal. And, and so I really feel like that is going to have a huge effect on how other players play, and it already has. And I guess that's what I was getting at with my question. Not that Bryson should be, first of all, criticized or that he's considered that unique. He's not. He's unique in the sense that he's a pioneer, but all the players that will follow him will follow his model and – that model will become prevalent, in my opinion. And we saw it with Tony Finau already. Tony Finau actually has, as you know, more, more horsepower innately than Bryson ever did. And now he's saying, maybe I left some yards out there that I should be utilizing. And he had a bad finish last week, but those first three rounds, or at least two and a half rounds, were superlative. He led by four himself. So I see this being something that the question is, is this the golf we want to see? If people start perfecting this way of playing, is this the golf we want to see? Not to blame the player for doing it, not to blame the golf ball or the equipment or anything except what was available to these guys, but 
Should, is the game getting out of balance and should it be addressed by the regulatory bodies? And I think that's the overriding question now, not again, that the athletes should be criticized for, for taking it as far as they can take it, but are the fathers of the game you know, overseeing it correctly? I mean, I hear those questions, you know, coming from architectural corners and I can understand uh, they're, you know, plaintiff whales about, is this the golf we want to see? Um, but, you know, you, you're talking about penalizing people for becoming more athletic and shouldn't we be encouraging people to become more well, athletic? Can I just interject really quickly? I mean, sure. I think if, if there was any regulatory action at all, the greatest athletes would still have the advantage and always have the advantage. Uh, and that's not going away. What matters? Not, not, not really. So in 1968, okay. in 1968, Bob Gibson had a 1.12 ERA. Okay. Yeah. In 1969, they lowered the mound something like 10 inches. Yeah. He didn't pitch like that in 1969. That's right. He didn't, but he still had they, the advantage. He was still a great pitcher. They took his advantage away from him. You know, it was. It wasn't just his advantage. It was every pitcher's advantage. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe well, that's he, the point. Maybe he figured out some way to, to throw a ball. Uh, you know, I, you know, my expertise in baseball is very limited, but perhaps he had an advantage because he figured it out, and then he had to go back and recreate. Um, you know, maybe he had to, he had to change his technique. Um, you know, without which, knowing Bob Gibson's, you know, micro career. I, I would disagree with you. I, I think every pitcher suffered from the mound being lowered. And the reason baseball did it was because there were too many shutouts. There were too many low ERAs. The game was becoming a bad product. Nobody was hitting the ball and they changed the rule because they didn't like the way the game was being the style of the game. And I don't think anybody regrets that. And I didn't hear a lot of pitchers wailing so, about it. So, yeah. so, so you're saying the game was a worse game because there was less offense. And now because yes. there's more offense in golf, you're saying it's a worse game. No, it's not, well, it's not, it's not apples to apples. I mean, it's, it's well, the, it's it the way to apples to apples. No, it because isn't. Because offense is working in the NFL. No, let me just give you another example then. Baseball also got out of balance in the other direction. And there were too many homers. And the game. A hundred years ago. No, not a hundred years ago. No, in the 80s. Okay. And the, I should say in the 90s. And obviously with Bonds and – and uh, Sosa yeah, well, and, that was because of and, and, and McGuire. But, but the point difference. is, there was a time when suddenly you saw second baseman, you know, not to say every second baseman is the same, but generally they're smaller guys getting 45 home runs. And the ball was just going out too easily. No, they were and, cheap. Huh? Well, maybe some of that was steroids, but some of it too all was. All of it was steroids. No, the golf, the, the, the baseball itself can be hardened or softened. Nobody knows exactly how, but they do that. They regulate that. There's a lot of things. The, the strike zone gets tightened by the umpires. A lot of things can happen. There's a lot of ways to change the effect in baseball. And there's a lot of ways to affect the change in golf. I don't disagree with you that growing rough, like it was at Muirfield Village, causes a higher degree of skill through the bag to be necessary. I, and I like that. Except what I don't like about a lot of rough is that it tends to take the driver out of people's hands. And also, when you get into really deep rough, there's not a lot of options for the player from there. So I think the product, the golf product to watch, becomes a little less interesting when there's really high rough. Uh, I like to see fast and firm, but more options. 
I like to see the driver in guy's hands so that the guy who's long and straight can get his advantage. But right now, when you're long and straight, you've got 60 yards to the green. And I just think that's, that's my objection. Yeah. Yeah, I hear it. I know your objection. I hear it. I hear it. <laughs> but you disagree. I, I mean, you, I, hear, you would... I, I hear it all the time. I, I, I'm convinced that people of your ilk think the game would be better if they were playing with wooden shafted golf clubs because no, I, no, no. then the game would be even more about skill, they say. Well, no, but, there's a point. There's a point, obviously, where you want to see the glorious shot, the momentous shot, is, as really keeps quoting uh, Bobby Jones, and he does it with a purpose. Um, I, I don't want to see the, the game go back to nothing. I just want to see guys use little longer clubs into the greens. That's really basically as simple as I, as I can put it. A little longer clubs, because as you know, and you played and you understand better than I, the skill factor and, and how have an iron close as opposed would, to hitting a wedge close. Right. And how do you think the game would be improved if they're hitting longer clubs into greens? Because the margin of error is smaller. The guy with the most skill who has the most control would still get, be able to get seven irons inside birdie range more often. And the guys who would be hitting um, – and now you see so many players – with wedges in their hands, get what I would call pretty unchallenging birdies uh, because they're just hitting so little club in. I mean, I just think if there's a higher premium on the second shot, the best player will separate himself more easily. And that's really, and like you said at, at, at Muirfield Village, that golfers spread out the field. Why? Because it distinguished between a, an average shot and a good shot and a good shot and a great shot more than you would if everybody was just hitting nine irons and wedges into the greens. So if I hear you right, you're saying that you want them to hit longer shots into greens mm -hmm. because it's more about control and more about skill. So yes. having said that, okay. if they grow the rough mm -hmm. and you say that it takes the driver out of the hands, I would say, I would argue, no, it would allow the person who had the greatest skill and the greatest control to use driver to a great advantage. The skill would be that you're looking for in the fairway would just be moved back to the tee. Since, you, okay. since it is inevitable that runners are going to run faster, jumpers mm -hmm. are going to jump higher, golfers are going to hit it further. If you start legislating backwards in the game, one, I, I think, and you know, you know, and you know, I, I think we'll just come to an impasse on this because no, when you yeah. legislate backwards, You've robbed manufacturers of their intellectual property. Now, that's another issue. But mm -hmm. besides that, you are, in effect, saying that we know better than the natural evolution of the game how to make this game great. And maybe you do, but I'm not ready oh, for the game to be turned over to every custodian who thinks that their era was better than the previous era. I'm happy with the evolution of the game. I see athleticism. I see taller, fitter, stronger, faster players. And the skill that you're talking about from the fairway, admittedly, I miss it too. I would like to see a great two iron or three iron hit. But last week, I was talking about the shot that got my attention the most. And it was a three wood that John Rahm hit on 15 into the par five. So I now par, par five are essentially your par fours. So I know, but you only get four of them. I just think you'd see it more often. Right. And I look at, we agree more than you think. I agree with you about the, the, the tee shot, make the tee shot, put the premium on accuracy and length. And the guys who are really good could still hit it with high rough. The problem is high rough generally is set up in a way 
where the percentage is just taken away from somebody who misses the fairway by two yards, as opposed to somebody who sprays it. And, you know, we saw Nicholas one iron majors to death and that's why he did. It just wasn't worth it to hit driver, even as good as he was. I just don't like to see the game going that way in a way to me, that's going backwards. Uh, and, the, and the last thing, just, Nicholas I get you about, I get you the game ever had. Sorry. Nicholas was the greatest driver the game ever had. He was, but he didn't use driver a lot when the rough was up. And it, I just think we didn't get to see his full extent of his greatness because of it. Uh, I just like seeing driver. You know, I want to see driver. I like length. I, I think he used the driver plenty. Well, you know, I mean, he did what at your field, I think, he, you know, of course, that was a crazy course and Tiger did the same thing. But in 66, I think he hit one driver for 72 holes. And that was well, that's, that's an isolated that's, case, but I mean, in a lot of U.S. Opens, as hard as rebar. Yeah, um, it was. It was. I I, I I use that as an outlier, but his strategy was hit whatever gives me the best chance of playing from the fairway. And you know, driver, he smart man. He, he he was the smartest. I, I I'm not second guessing Jack. I'm strategy only strategy on the tee is a great thing. If you decide that one iron is, I mean, watching a player come up with a game plan and execute it, that that's drama to me. I think, okay. I think, different... uh, I think the, you know, I think the games, whatever problems there are, and I, I don't think there are any, but, um, you know, if we had more setups like Augusta National and we had more setups like Bay Hill, I, and you know, I mean, people who love to argue with me on this love to create a straw man with my argument. And I think to be fair, you should do the opposite. You should create a strong man of somebody's argument and then try to beat it. Okay. I'm not suggesting that every week that the golf course should have thick rough. Okay. I'm quite happy with Augusta national and I'm quite happy with a handful of tournaments a year played like that, where it's, it's more about giving the player opportunities. But I also think that not every golf course is blessed with the type of um, sandy yeah, soil, soil yeah. compaction right. and windy weather that gives you Lynxland, Heathland, and and uh, and Sandbell golf courses. So Parkland golf courses have different soil compaction, which means you're going to have a different style of golf, which means you have to have different rewards, different philosophies, different ideas, and different architecture. You, when you take a Lynxland or Heathland or Sandbell architecture idea and try to transplant it onto a piece of property without the soil compaction or the salt, the sandy soil or the windy nature of it you'll end up with an experiment that didn't work out didn't well. Work. Trinity Forest in yeah. Dallas. It mm -hmm. didn't work for tour players. I don't need to see the most inaccurate driver hit 90% of the fairways and win that golf tournament. That's not what I need to see. That's not what I want to see. Don't want to see it. Um, you know, I'm not saying that the golf course isn't great and the design isn't great. I'm just saying that that idea and philosophy everywhere. No, the variety is part of it. I'm asking for variety in the game so that players at the highest level will have to hit it straight. And if, if they want the advantage of power, they have to learn to hit it long and straight. And that's why I applaud what Bryson is doing. And me too. And me too. And, and look at, I don't know what the straw man that I set up. I, I don't think I did in terms of, I'm acknowledging all your points. I think we just differ on a couple of things. And well, you, I think if the straw man is, is that, that hitting it long and straight is not as off the tee is not as good as hitting it long and straight in the fairway. And that 
hitting wedge shots around the green is uninteresting. You know, you, you extrapolate to it's a lesser game. I, and I, yeah, I, I guess I extrapolate. I just feel like when I watch players on the champions tour or on the LPGA tour or on the PGA tour hit their drives into wedge area, the game is less challenging. There's less uh, nuance. There's less skill required in terms of, you know, um, I mean, obviously the guy who's really skilled will put it six feet and the guy who's not will put it 18 feet, but it's still a pretty much, you know, a, a game without a lot of risk as long as the tee shot is playable. And so all I'm saying is, yes, let length be an asset, but if it's, if it's not accurate, it shouldn't still be a wedge from a playable lie. And I think I that's agree. what's happened. And that's what bomb and gouge is. And that's why I tour agree. players. And that's why strokes gained uh, from the T has become the predominant um, metric. Because if you can do that, you will have an advantage over the shorter hitters, even if they're straight. And that's, I just feel like it's not a huge earth shaking world threatening um, issue, but it's a trend that I think golf could easily correct. Well, straight and, Straight, straight is only one small part of the game. You know, straight hitters who have all facets of the game are tough to beat still. Yes, yes, they are. Uh, and, you know, I love Furyk. I mean, he was hanging Jordan, in there at Muirfield Village. But, Jordan Spieth is a middle-tier player, and they couldn't beat him for a few years. They couldn't. They, he was not a middle-tier player. A middle no, tier, no, I know what you mean. Middle-tier length. Yeah, yeah, middle-tier yeah. power. Well, and that genius player. that he had, you know, the putter and the and and his and his short shots and and as you know he was a great he was a great iron oh, player. He had he had strategy, yeah. he had skill, yeah. he had nerve. He had he had you know. I'm he still had, yeah. I mean I'm. Let, let me just say I mean a guy like Faldo who didn't have length who reminds me a little of Jordan in some you know in some general ways. To me, one of the greatest players I ever saw, Trevino, one of the greatest players I ever saw. Um, I love length, but I still feel to your point. Those kind of players, whether it's a modern-day Faldo or a modern-day Trevino, would still be very hard to beat. But the trend, the way to play if you're out on tour percentage-wise is to play with power and, and survive the inaccuracy. That's the way to play yeah. percentage-wise yeah. if you have the power in your game. And it's just not, to me, the game that really brings out that nuance that we love in a Trevino or a Faldo or a Jordan Spieth. And that's getting lost. I'll just make one really quick analogy. Um, about another sport. I, this, I was just thinking of this the other day. There was a time in the NCAA basketball in which dunking was um, disallowed. And uh, at that time, Lou Alcindor was going to uh, UCLA. It's, some people call it the Alcindor rule. Basically, he was just so overpowering that, you know, it was very easy for him to just dunk on everybody. I know where you're going with this. Okay, so they, <laughs> took, they took the dunk away. Right. Okay. How did I know where you're going? Okay. So Kareem, to become Kareem, develops the sky hook, probably the most unstoppable, maybe the most graceful, most skillful shot in the history of basketball. Comes up, a wonderful game around the basket where he's not dunking. He's really accurate with these little six and eight foot, ten foot uh, bank shots. He becomes this incredibly well-rounded player. So you fast forward to that to someone like Shaq 
who was a great player in the end, but I think an underachiever because he never really developed a lot of nuance around the hoop. He didn't have a go-to shot. He was a poor free throw shooter. He was a poor shooter in general. He dunked all the time. It wasn't as fun or as, as interesting or as skillful as Kareem or Bill Walton or Dwight Howard, who's, you know, even more of that type of player, very one-dimensional. So my point is when you adjust the rules correctly, it brings out more skill. And I think golf's losing some of its skill because the rules have not addressed some of the changes that have become naturally evolving because of the superior athlete. You still have to legislate that, I think, to create the best product. Yeah, what if they did away with three point uh, three point? Well, I think it's too, they got to move it back. They probably have to move it back a little. Steph Curry, right? You know, that's right. You, they got to move it back a little. You're 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 giving high compliments to uh, to what one person did because of his incredible um, work ethic, intelligence. Um, I don't know. And, I don't uh, think I don't think he would have developed that with he think, could have done. I think he's a lot like Tiger. You could you could create any scenario you wanted, and he was just going to turn it into a Monet. Um, okay. You know, because he, that's one matter. player. That's the athlete. I guess where we are. And executives see great athletes and they're like, well, how can we stop this guy? And what Lou Alcindor was saying, you're not going to stop. Me. Okay. You, you create any scenario, I'm going to win because I'll outwork you, I'll outthink you, and I am a better I'm not, not going to disagree with you at all on the singular athlete. That guy will always find a way. I'm <laughs> talking about a, find a way. I'm, and, but I'm talking about a trend. Use the hook. I'm talking shot. about a trend here. How many players use the hook shot? How Not many? anymore. Yeah, right. very few. Nobody, right? Did it catch on? No, one person used that shot. Oh well, he, you know, he didn't invent it either. Uh, one person but, made it memorable. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I know you got a cleaning person coming in here in two minutes. <laughs> uh, gonna, yeah, I, I think. Thank goodness for for. For people who can come over and fix problems at a house, so <laughs> just moved in and uh, having things fixed up. But uh, I will say this, Jaime, I I I so enjoy talking golf with you. I do always learn when I listen to you. I really do. So thank you. I I, I enjoy our debates and I enjoy our disagreements, and I come away from every single one of them, and my ideas have changed. So I no, really appreciate. I praise. I really thank appreciate. I, I and I. You know, look, I'm debating the other side of this. If they rolled the doggone ball back, it wouldn't bother me in the least. <laughs> it wouldn't bother the best golf. The best guys would still do it. Yeah. Lou Alcindor would still come up with a hook shot, mm -hmm. you know, and there's the Lou Alcindors or, you know, John Rahm, Jordan Spieth, Roy McIlroy, they'd still come up, you know, and, they, and the powers that be would think that they've done a better thing for the game of golf. But, you know, personally, and look, I, I, I will – I just have a soft spot for the ingenuity of, of engineers and the people whose job it is to go into a room and try to make a better golf club. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and if you're in that business, would you not be in there trying to make a club that is more forgiving of a miss? Of course. And that makes the ball fly better through the air and that makes your golf club and your putts more stable and you know, the agronomists that have figured out ways to grow grasses that are, you know, heat tolerant. So I am just, I, you know, and I, I don't know that they, they're not allowed to run amok. They have to work within perimeters or parameters. I say it, yeah. say. you know, the, the tolerances for rebound or in the face and the, the length and the, you know, they have all these parameters that they have to work around. And so you're in there competing with Callaway or Titleist or TaylorMade and you, 
you're trying to beat that person and then you, you just through sheer ingenuity and hard work and genius, you come up with an idea that is better than your competitors. And then because it's better, you're penalized. No, and well. they say, well, well, now we're going to change the rules on you. You know, to me, I, one, I don't really, I, I don't think the game is, is any worse. And two, I just mm-hmm. think that's just, that's, that's un-American. I mean, <laughs> you've, you've given people parameters to work within. They've gone out and done exactly what they were meant to do, which was build better equipment. And now we're saying, you guys were too good at your jobs. What well, the USGA and the RNA should do is hire engineers whose sole job is to create better equipment than the engineers at equipment companies. Pay them what top engineers are paid at equipment companies and say, here's all the materials, here's your job, so that they can always be in front of whatever ideas are being originated at the equipment companies because you're never, ever going to beat the engineers at the equipment companies. And that's never. fine. You're always going to be chasing them if that is the scenario. And if they really want to get out in front of this, they have to pay and hire engineers to build equipment in these places so that they will have some idea of what they are trying to thwart and not be on the other side of it and say, wow, you really did a great job, but because you did such a great job, we're going to take it away from you. Well, first of all, I'm idealizing the whole like, the whole thought about this is the way the game should be played. I, you know, I can watch this kind of golf and love it as well. I'm, t- I'm idealizing the style I'd like to see. But the big thing here is testing the best players so the best player wins more often. That's the USGA and the RNA's goal. Their first priority is not the equipment companies. How do they know who the best player is? How do they know who the best player is? You telling me no. Tiger wasn't the best player? He was the best player, but he would ask Tiger himself and he would say, Give me Bolada and give me, and I'm not saying go back to this. I'm only saying he, he wanted the, the equipment to be more challenging and not. With all due respect, Jaime, that's just a bunch of bull. That's bull. Yeah, okay. Tiger was the one who went to the solid core golf ball. I know we've talked about else, that. And that's the reason he won the U.S. Open by 15. Okay, maybe that's, that's right. the only reason. Now, now you're arguing I mean, against yourself. Well, look, I mean, he would have won by eight, but he won by 15 because he okay. had a ball nobody else had. I'll, I'll concede the point just for the sake of argument, but here's the here's my overall point. Uh, and that is they're okay. They are not thwarting. Now we're just talking about the overall game of golf, not just the professional tours. If there is bifurcation, they would not be thwarting the equipment companies in the least. They could innovate forever, and the average golfer would be the beneficiary. The amateur golfer would be the beneficiary. This is only about the sliver in which skill is what we're really looking at and admiring. And that's all I'm saying is being compromised right now. And secondly, other sports do it all the time. Auto racing, they have governors. They got, it got too fast. It got too dangerous. They had to slow safety it down. Reasons. It happens. That's for you know? safety reasons. Well, okay, safety reasons. In, in golf, it's real estate reasons. You just can't keep growing golf courses. It just you think we're running out of real estate? You ever take well, a flight I, from New York to L.A.? Okay, uh, look. At you think we're running out of real estate? We're running out of real estate in terms of the great golf. I just climbed a mountain a couple of days ago. I looked out. Okay, there's, man. There's nothing but real estate. You're a good polemicist. In you every know? direction. And, I, and and you grew up at an at a dinner table with three lawyers, so I can't compete. 
Don't worry about running out of real estate. That's a bogus excuse. Well, we're we're running out of real. No, no. Let me qualify it. We're running out of real estate on the great golf courses. We are running out of real estate. Oh well, that's a different issue. Okay, so you can call me an equipment guy. No, you just want want people to play old golf courses with wooden shafted clubs. I love the new courses. Look, it. It's simple. I just want to see what you just said about John Rahm. I love that shot, and you got to wait for it. Won a tournament. I want to see seven or eight a tournament. That's fair point. Okay, that's I, all. Hey, listen, I'm with you. I miss Long Iron too. Okay, thank you. But they're gone like goiter and kerosene. Oh, they could come back. They could. It's not that big a leap. <laughs> but listen, I, I look at the reason I, I'm honored to do a podcast with you is because whenever you talk, I learn. So it's my, it's my privilege. But uh, thank you for saying that in even a small way about me. Thanks. Uh, I really and enjoyed it. We'll talk some more. Look forward and to uh, enjoy, enjoy your new abode. And thanks, thanks so much. Again. All right. Thanks.